targeting people when they don't have any intention of engaging with our product or solution probably is a fool's errand and probably contributes to all of this inefficiency. But it also may mean fundamentally, and this is the part that nobody wants to hear, that you will not grow as quickly, that there, there is no magic formula to growing at the same rates that you used to grow at because capital is not as available and people are less responsive. This is Revenue Makers, the podcast by Sixth Sense, investigating successful revenue strategies that pushed companies ahead. Hey, Adam, you ready for today's episode? I am ready. Why don't you tell everyone who we're going to be talking to? Today, I'm super excited. So we are talking to Sam Jacobs. He is the CEO and co-founder of Pavilion, which is the world's largest community of sales professionals. Nice. So we're going to get into the $2 trillion problem, which is really about all this waste and money that's left on the table by sales and marketing and really just revenue teams as a whole. Uh, and it's become even more exasperated in this sort of macroeconomic world that we're living in. And I think Sam has got a really amazing perspective on this. And having been a, a founder, a CEO, CRO multiple times, should be some really interesting insights. I'm really excited to see what he has to say about it. Same. And I think just, you know, being able to speak to so many sales professionals through his community, through the events, I think we're going to get some interesting nuggets. All right. Let's type in. Let's do it. All right. Well, I probably couldn't do this guest bio justice. So Sam, I would love it if you could just introduce yourself. And again, it's probably not introducing yourself because most people out there probably know who you are, but would love for you to well, just... If that were true, that would be a great thing. I'm Sam, everybody, Sam Jacobs. I'm the CEO and founder of Pavilion. Pavilion is the leading go-to-market community for high-growth executives, CEOs, and founders in the world. It's 10,000 people all over the world coming together to learn how to be great at their jobs and have and lead meaningful careers. I also wrote a book called Kind Folks Finish First about some of the lessons that I've learned building Pavilion. And I'm also just a huge fan of Sixth Sense and have been working with the company in some capacity for a number of years ever since Latney joined. So that's me, based currently in Sag Harbor, New York, moving back into the city next week. Oh, Sag Harbor. Okay, I'm out in Smithtown, I guess, or oh. further in Smithtown, so pretty close. And I'm glad to be here. Thanks for joining. Uh, so today's episode, it, it's actually being called the $2 trillion execution problem. And it really stems from this research brief that BCG put out earlier in the year, where they quantified that basically sales and marketing teams collectively are leaving $2 trillion annually on the table in terms of just productivity shortfalls, lost opportunities, inefficient sales prospecting, revenue leakage in the funnel. And so we figured who better to talk to us about that than the person who obviously runs the world's largest sales community. And so we'd love to, you know, get your take on that and what you're seeing and what you're hearing from everyone else. Sure. Here's what I'm hearing. It's rough out there. And it's not just this BCG data. Every data point that I'm seeing, particularly for technology and technology sales, is worrisome. So a couple recent data points. First, Jeremy Donovan, who works at Insight Partners, but used to work at Sales Loft and before that CB Insights and before that GLG did some research and it turns out that five years ago, when it comes to outbound sales, it took in the aggregate 200 to 400 touches to create an opportunity. And today that number has grown to 1,000 to 1,400. So what that means is that it's four to five times as hard or four to five times less effective 
to do what you were doing five years ago. And of course, that's because there are sales engagement platforms and mass messaging tools that have enabled a whole army of people to send millions and millions and millions of messages. And of course, what that has the impact of doing is deadening the responsiveness of buyers and human beings on the other end of all of those messages. There's a substack called Clouded Future, and he released some data that the average CAC payback period for publicly traded SaaS businesses has grown from 21 months a couple of years ago to 48 months most recently. 48 months meaning you spend a dollar today in some form of sales and marketing acquisition to the point of the $2 trillion loss, and you don't get that full dollar back for four years. And the problem there are many, but obviously one of them is that it sucks up all of your working capital. Like you need a massive balance sheet in order to finance that. But more importantly, who knows what the hell is going to happen in four years? And the idea that you won't have that visibility on the investments that you're making for that long, given the way that the world is changing, is highly, highly problematic. So what all of that means is that one way or the other, I think go-to-market teams are thinking about, I guess the last point I'll make to round it out, we've moved from a world of growth at any cost to a world of efficient growth. Growth at any cost because low interest rates meant abundant capital, which meant that like literally, as it said, it didn't really matter how much it cost to get the growth because there was more money to fund into the business later, regardless of what the outcomes were. And now there's much more scrutiny and capital is simply less available and less abundant. There's also three times as many software companies as there were five yeah. years ago. So that's one of the reasons why responsiveness has declined and why there's so much inefficiency. And so the thing that I'm hearing from talking to CROs and CEOs every single day is how do we grow efficiently and what do I need to understand and acknowledge in order to do that? And of course, one of the things you need to understand, one more data point that I love, this one is a great one. Uh, a couple of years ago, $1 of growth was worth $11 of profit. And I think this is from JP Morgan. So what this means is, again, growth is 11 times more valuable than profitability or efficiency, right? And that ratio is contracted to one to two and a half, which means growth is still important. It's still more important, but it is five times less important than it was a couple of years ago in a low interest rate environment. Okay, so what does all of that mean for all of us as go-to-market leaders? Well, uh, certainly it means we should probably all be using a platform like Sixth Sense because targeting people when they don't have any intention of engaging with our product or solution probably is a fool's errand and probably contributes to all of this inefficiency. But it also may mean fundamentally, and this is the part that nobody wants to hear, that you will not grow as quickly, that there, there is no magic formula to growing at the same rates that you used to grow at because capital is not as available and people are less responsive. And so everybody wants there to be some magic answer. Oh, well, I tried partnerships or I tried ecosystems or I tried communities, but they didn't really work. Well, it's not that they didn't work. Nothing is going to work as well as Outbound did five years ago before all of this stuff happened. The reality is that nothing is going to work as well, and you have to be willing to accept lower growth in favor of efficiency. And that is just fundamentally hard for people to acknowledge. It's just they hear it, they nod, but then they don't really fundamentally understand that, yeah, today, if you grew 20%, but you had 20% profit margins, it's far more valuable. You're still hitting the rule of 40 than if you grew 100%, but burned $10 million of capital and ran out of money. Yeah. So long-winded answer, but that's the summary of what I'm seeing. So, I mean, given the sobering nature of that, and obviously this is probably not anything new for a CEO, a founder, a sales leader, anyone out there right now, but 
putting on your founder's hat for a second, if someone's looking at their organization, they, they obviously see what's going on. How do they start to just identify those hot areas? I mean, we talk about outbound, we talk about just customer acquisition as a whole, but where do they start to zone in on it? Where, what kind of advice would you give? Say, all right, I'm going to start on this sort of efficiency, I'm calling it an audit, but an efficiency play. Like how do I identify the real hot areas and where should I go first just to start to, to really start to nip some of this in the butt? To your point, Adam, it's a bit of a problematic answer because it's going to raise some of the hairs on the back of people's necks. But the first place is obviously looking at the org chart and looking at the size of your organization. And because one of the things that has gone up over the past year is rep efficiency, right? Which means that, well, why is that? It's because salespeople are getting laid off and all of the good leads are flowing to a smaller number of sellers. And it turns out that that works really, really well. And even Adam Robinson, who's a big LinkedIn influencer, was talking about how they employed this very idea and they concentrated all of their leads in a much smaller team and they actually saw total revenue generation go up in addition to productivity going up. So that's one place I would start. The second place I would start is really understanding the math behind your business and the unit economics and understanding, so what's the single biggest job that is being called into question right now? It is the job of the sales development rep, the SDR or the BDR, whatever you call them. You got to make sure that that math works. I'm sure Latney always makes sure that the math works at six cents, but not yeah. enough people do. Yeah. And so that would be the second place I would start. And then I would look at other channels like partnerships, but I would understand that they take longer to mature into season and that you might have to look at your top line growth expectations for 2024 and potentially lower them, but understand that you're doing that trade-off in favor of efficiency. You're doing that trade-off because the deals are going to be better. They're going to stick around longer and you're going to pay less to acquire them, but it might be fewer total deals over the course of the year. Yeah. We have this, um, we have this saying internally at Sixth Sense that ideas are easy, but execution is everything. And so we run a fairly tight ship in terms of, you know, measuring, baselining, benchmarking, trending regularly, meaning the plan that we set at the beginning of the quarter, how are we trending against it? And that takes into account all of kind of what you said, right? But I want to go back to something you, you said in your initial intro is there's so much information out there. And just because you can spam and talk to, you know, all these prospects doesn't mean you should. And I frankly, I think the B2B buyer is demanding a more personalized, curated journey. And so even as we take into account rep productivity and the efficiency and effectiveness of the BDRs, how do you feel like we should be meeting those customer expectations? I think to your point, I think it's really hard. So let's acknowledge that. I think that deeply personalized, highly relevant messaging is not, that's not really AI that's going to help with that because AI is really good at removing the banal, broad aggregate level of overall messaging and communication, but it's not really good yet at creating something that feels deeply human, deeply relevant, and deeply interesting. So what does that mean? Well, that means a different hiring profile for some of the people. And again, all of this is a form of saying higher customer acquisition cost, right? Yeah. You're like, okay, I'm going to send many fewer emails. I'm going to do two hours of research every time I send an email. Okay. That, and that probably will work. That's far more expensive than it's ever been to create that message. So then you just need to make sure that the economics around the rest of your business work, that your deal sizes support that, that your overall gross margins support it. I would say one of the best ways to meet people where they want and one of the best ways to stand out is in-person experiences, in-person events, which is why communities are so important and why it's so important. Because 
that's the thing that cannot be replaced. You know, being in a room full of other great people and feeling like you're part of an interesting conversation in that room is a thing that is just really, really hard to copy. And it's a thing that I think companies, that's one channel that people should be thinking about and investing in. You know, it's interesting through COVID and it's still, even though like we're, we're clearly like out of it. I mean, obviously people are still getting sick and it doesn't happen as much, but events are back. But even, I still like, we had our customer conference last month and it's still that like, wow, we're an event. This is in the communal, I still feel it. I mean, I'm, they don't let me out very much, but when I do get out, um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing to, for that. So like coming from your world of, I mean, it's a community that you've built. How are you sort of continuing to drive that in-person experience while still, I mean, cause again, in-person events can get, they're not the cheapest thing in the world and they certainly are obviously the payback is high. Like, how are you sort of making that balance of like, because you, you, you sort of are this, there's a lot of virtual going on. I know, especially with Pavilion, but how are you driving that line between the two and, and maintaining that efficiency while still being able to do that sort of experiential piece of the business? Well, it's hard. I mean, you have to have a deep understanding of the math of the investments. That's which is obvious, but still bears stating. The second thing I would say is, you know, this is true for so many things in life, but you really have to be careful about the middle. The middle is the place that it can get tricky to get stuck in. And so what I mean is you either need to develop, deliver like an incredible experience or you need to make it clear that the experience really is not part of why people are getting together and that's intentionally sort of cheap, but maybe there's more of those opportunities as a consequence. So at Pavilion, we've got really like two, maybe three kinds of events. We've got these salon style dinners that are highly structured, that the guest list is highly curated. We do hundreds of those a year and those are pretty core to the membership experience. And so we're going to continue to invest in them. But again, it's because we have the data that tells us that when people go to events, they're far more likely to renew their membership than if they never do. Then we've also created, basically riffing on TEDx, we've created Pavilion X, which is basically members' ability to organize themselves, where we make it very clear through the branding, hey, this isn't a, a salon dinner of the type that we normally host, but it is one more opportunity for you to convene with your fellow community members and get to know people that are based in the same function or same geography or doing the same thing. And then we have these big tentpole events where we're really, really focused on content. And I think that it's the combination of content plus community that is the winning formula for a lot of different companies, not just ours these days. And so it's, can you teach somebody something interesting? And that's why, you know, the dark funnel is so interesting because it's still effectively commercial teaching of the kind that we first learned about when we all first read the Challenger sale, which is companies have to be, I guess the bottom line I would say is this. There's always going to be room and space. In fact, it's going to be even more important as we move forward with AI for interesting stories and interesting lessons and interesting storytellers. And that's why, even though there's a million podcasts, it might make sense to create the next podcast. Even though there's a million conferences, it might make sense to create the next, if you have something interesting to say. Where is something interesting to say going to come from? It's probably going to come from the heart and from a lot of research and deep domain expertise, and then with some level of authenticity and credibility. And if you can combine all of those things into an event and people know that when they get that, that's part of the brand that you can, the promise that you can deliver on, then I think it can make a lot of sense. I would say that it doesn't, even just taking the example of a dinner, I've been to so many dinners that have been hosted by other vendors and they're just not well run. And it's hard to hear what everybody's saying. And there's all of these people talking over each other. So it sort of depends on whoever you happen to sit next to. They didn't do a good enough job curating the guest list. So you happen to sit next to somebody that maybe isn't that interesting for you. 
And that's kind of the middle that I'm talking about. I think if you're going to do something, you have to really focus on doing it at a high quality. And over time, that will be the most efficient way to do it. Totally. Um, so we've talked about, you know, curating a customer and prospect experience to really help move things along. Let's talk a little bit about internal revenue teams. Communication and collaboration is crucial really to drive growth and efficiency. How do you encourage cross-functional alignment to tackle some of the inefficiencies and execution challenges that, you know, happen internally within the revenue team? Thanks for asking that, Saima. I, uh, I have a methodology for you. Oh, so I love it. We, <laughs> I think Sixth Sense may even be a member of uh, the GTM Consortium. So what is the point of this consortium that we started with Winning by Design? The point is that we think that alignment is one of the keys to efficient growth. So how do you drive alignment? Three mechanisms to do that. And the, the first is the most important. The most important is data, a common set of data and data definitions, right? So one of the biggest ways that you fall out of alignment is that the same word means something different to somebody in a different department. Pipeline, win rate, even bookings versus some people might say revenue and they might mean bookings. And some people might say revenue and they mean revenue as in recognized revenue in that time period. So the first thing is we got to make sure that we're measuring the stuff appropriately. There's a big question about the, out there about who should RevOps report to. And I think there's a compelling argument that they should report to finance and not to anybody in the revenue organization. Why? Because I don't want there to be politics around the data. I want it to be an objective set of data Nobody disagrees about how many leads we got. Nobody disagrees about what the pipeline contribution was. Nobody disagrees so that we have one consistent set of data measured. And then, of course, here's the important part, measured well past post-sale. So the other big problem and challenge is that our pre-sale funnel has been so well architected, but you can't grow as a recurring revenue business unless you have low churn and high retention and high net dollar retention. But the post-sale funnel has not been as well architected. So we need a customer journey. And we did a, a survey with HubSpot, Pavilion did, and we found out that only 40% of respondents had a documented customer journey across the life cycle of their relationship with their customer. So I think that's a big, big problem and that contributes to that $2 trillion in efficiency. So document that journey, architect it with data, then you need language. Again, this is speaking to the definitions, not just of the data points, but it's again, so important that when we say a word, everybody understands the definition of that word so that we can have the same conversation. And then finally, a process, a system or a methodology, again, that stretches across the like, customer life cycle. Because it doesn't really do any good to put in like BANT or MEDIC or some kind of qualification methodology that completely ignores everything that happens to the customer journey post-sale. So those are some of the things that I think are, but what we're fundamentally comes down to is you know, what you inspect, expect, what you expect, you inspect, or what you inspect, you expect, or what you measure gets done or whatever. The point is like, there needs to be a common set of data across the customer journey that no one department owned, but that everybody is incentivized against. Absolutely. And the only thing, because I run analytics, I'm along with marketing, I'm just going to say beyond the data, I think the transparency and the cadence of reviewing the data with the right audience in mind is, can, can just be a huge remover of all the barriers, right? Like everyone should yeah. have access, know where we are at any given point in a month, in a quarter, against plan, put the numbers in context. I mean, I could go on. I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. Go ahead, Adam. 
Well, no, I was going to say, like, I was uh, at another company, name I will not mention, where everyone had their own dashboard and uh, everyone's numbers were different. So it was sort of like, what version of the truth are we going to operate from today? And that's where, that's where, like, the head of sales and the head of marketing or the head of CS, that's where you can easily see them get into a fight. Yeah. Because inevitably, the dashboard for their department will make their department look better in some way, shape, or form. And again, the last thing I would say is to the point of like the quarterly plan is like the quarterly plan, especially for a company of six cents is size, because I'm sure you guys are doing in the whatever, nine or 10 figures of revenue. I think 10 figures might be a billion, but certainly you're doing nine figures. It has to include the retention profile. Like the plan has to be, in fact, that's the more important part of the plan, which is a, which is a memo that still most people have not received that. It's still true in the board meeting that we spend more time talking about new business bookings and what's the pipeline look like than, well, what's the retention forecast and where are we going to end up and, you know, who's going to be celebrated when we get to 120% NDR and, and, you know, whose heads are going to roll when we get to 80% or whatever it may be. Yeah. So you bring up a question of, or the question of priorities, right? And I think you probably just answered the question because you're talking about like, you know, looking at through the lens of retention and so forth, but with all these things out there. All the teams have been figured, okay, we have to solve for, you know, X, Y, Z from, you know, pre-sale all the way through retention. Like, how do you muster a team together to set the priorities and where to start? Because again, there's, you go a hundred different directions trying to, to create this sort of new efficient world, but that's daunting. Well, I think it's really hard. Let's acknowledge that. I think it, the fundamental job of the CEO is to, well, you know, we know what the job is, right? You set the vision right? Make sure we never run out of money and then build the team to execute that vision. That's basically the job. I would say the other job when it comes to organizational design is design the go-to-market motion and the organization in such a way that you have the ability to focus on the customer, which sounds obvious, but is not obvious for a lot of people. So when you can focus on the customer truly, and you can work backwards from talking about retention, talking about NPS, talking about leading indicators that contribute to both of those numbers, because of course those are lagging indicators. When you really can start with the customer journey, everything else can fall into place. The problem again is focusing inordinately and in where you're spending your time talking about only new business. Of course, that's where the organization is going to gravitate. And it's because growth, again, growth at any cost versus efficient growth. The thing that enables long-term growth is retention, not new business bookings. So, but again, that's very, very hard. And when I say design the organization, I mean, design the cap table, like design your balance sheet. If you're burning a tremendous amount of capital because you're pursuing a valuation based on what you raised that in 2021, that's the opposite of what I'm talking about. Even if you're well underwater on your valuation, if you have a strong balance sheet, one of the things you can do to make it a good place to work, to play the infinite game, as Simon Sinek would say, and as Latney sometimes says, is design your efficiency in such a way that you don't need to raise money in two months because you're going to run out of it. You know, even if that means, hey, we got to reprice the options. Yeah. And it's so important because what you just said about that life cycle, that journey and, and keep starting with the end in mind rolls so nicely back into what we always say at Six Sense about starting with the ICP. Let's not sell churn. Let's sell to the right customer and meet them where they are in their journey and bring them along that journey. 100%. And that's, and again, you know, you all are lucky to have your leadership team in place. And it's just, it's not, that's not obvious to a lot of people. It wasn't obvious to me. I mean, and maybe it's because I'm just very old now, but I used to be younger. And when I was younger, I didn't believe that a year would ever come. You know, I said, oh, we'll, we'll, 
we'll figure it out in a year. We'll figure it out, whatever. Anything to get the new business in, anything to get the deal in. And it's only when you've had a few cycles around the sun when you realize that the year comes, it comes. And it's so much more painful. And it would just have been better to really, really focus on who do we want to sell to really even Again, that's why Medic is so valuable. Qualify the opportunity in the right way. Don't try and push, shove the deal down somebody's throat if they're, it just doesn't do any good. None of this, the thing that's happened, and again, this is, you know, to the point of 48 months payback, like there's four fundamental assumptions, I think. Maybe there's three. There are, there are a core, a set of fundamental assumptions that are implicit in SaaS in recurring revenue businesses. So the first is it's expensive to change somebody's mind, right? Which is why customer acquisition cost is high, right? It's like, we're going to spend a lot of money. We're going to go out, we're going to hit them over the head. We're going to show them ads. We're going to do all this stuff and they're going to change their mind. But after they change their mind, their mind is going to stay somewhat persistent, right? And, and they're not going to, will change their mind, but nobody else will. Hence, they will stick around for a long time, right? And it won't cost us. It's much more expensive to get somebody to change their ways than it is to just keep them in their ways. So the whole point is we'll spend a lot of money to acquire a customer, but it won't cost us that much to keep them around and they will stay for a long time. And the problem is that all of that right now is being called into question. People are changing vendors more often than the fundamental assumptions would imply. It seems like people actually change their mind quite a bit about vendors. And importantly, because all of these categories have become so competitive, we have to spend way more than we thought on retention on the cost of service, right? It's not as cheap as we thought. It's still cheaper probably, but it's not as cheap. So all of that means we just have to be really, really intentional. We have to be really, really intentional because it's going to be expensive one way or the other. And it, it really just doesn't work at all if customers don't stick around. So just, and again, I don't want to go dark again because we could get depressing again, but it is uh, November, so <laughs> the sun it's is setting. where I am. Look outside. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm running out of daylight here. So we've gone through this, or we're still in this, whatever this macroeconomic thing is, right? And things have changed and growth at all, you see growth at all costs. That's, that's probably dead forever, maybe. But what do you think if maybe it's not, but we get through maybe whatever this is and do we get back to a sense of normal? What do you think has forever changed in this process versus there may be some, either some old habits or some old things that could come back? I mean, this is kind of a swami kind of, you know, look into the future type of thing, but curious what you think about that. I think a lot about this question and I think most things will stay changed. So first, when it comes to communication channels and marketing channels, there's a pendulum at play there, right? What one channel works and then it stops, you know, events work and then everybody's throwing a conference and then events don't work anymore and all of a sudden email works again. So there's some level of I don't even think it's a word, but there's a, there's a pendulum that swings back and forth. Direct mail used to work. Now it feels like my mailbox is clogged so often that I'm not sure that it works, but maybe it still works a little bit. So marketing channels are always going to go back and forth, back and forth as new communication mediums emerge. The thing that I think is fundamentally different, I think that AI and automation means that the size of organization necessary to achieve certain growth rates is going to be much lower which could have a negative impact on the labor market and on sort of like the nature of, you know, I mean, I think one of the biggest, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think of the, here's the positive. The positive spin is I think we're entering the age of the solopreneur. I think that the concept of a company 
will continue to evolve and shift. And what I mean by that is I think many more people will be contractors as opposed to W-2 employees. And I think it'll be much more common to rent best-in-class expertise and have that expert serve a portfolio of clients than it is for one of the greatest marketers or CROs in the world to only work for one person. I could be wrong about that. But the flip side of that also is that there's a lot of jobs, the size of the organization and consequently the amount of capital required to get a company to a hundred million in revenue, I think will be diminished. And I think what that does is it puts pressure on the venture capital industry, to be honest with you, because the constraint of VC typically like the premise, the conceit is, Hey, it takes a ton of money to get to a hundred million. We'll give them that money exchange for major ownership. If it takes a lot less money and maybe valuations are lower as a result, then I think their fund structures are. So I think that's why you see so much activity in seed right now, but much less in growth equity. And I guess the, the last thing I will say, I think teams will be smaller. I think more people will do more with less, which again is not particularly interesting to say. <laughs> and I think finally, the ability to tell an interesting story will, will, will continue to rise to the surface as, as a critical skill. You know, I think one of the things that I've done, you know, reasonably well over the last couple of years that also, you know, Sixth Sense has done well and that a bunch of, but you've got to, there's got to be an authentic style to the content that you create. And I think you have to tell interesting stories and every company is a media company now to the point of being on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the rise, sorry, Simon, cut no. you off there. Say like the rise of, we talk about the, solo, the solopreneur, but like the, the rise of creators and like individuals who are now right. out there creating. And then all these platforms that have popped up to monetize what they're creating. And you can go and like in five minutes, you could write a, a book, an ebook and post it and you're generating revenue for it. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Well, Sam, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, we always like to end on one question just because this yes. is about the people and this is about, you know, your experiences. What's the most ridiculous thing you've been asked to do? In, in, in a job before. And it could be positive or negative. Well, fair enough. I mean, I don't know that this is the most ridiculous, but I'll tell you a story. I, you know, one of the companies I worked at, uh, it was really the first time that I became a CRO. So I, I literally, I did, I will acknowledge this and I will share with your listeners. Sometimes you should take a job for the title. Uh, I'd never had that C-suite title before. So I took this job. It was a well-known company, but I got there and I started digging into the math of the business. And I saw that the revenue projections were just wildly unrealistic and unexpected. I remember that the CEO was walking around and they were saying, I just got back from the board meeting. And if we give every enterprise, they didn't have an enterprise product and they didn't have an enterprise sales team at this point. And she kept saying, if we give everybody a $2 million quota, then we can hit our target for the year. These are people that do not work at the company <laughs> with a product that doesn't exist. So she said, I need to hire five enterprise sellers by January 31st. It was like the middle of January or we're never going to hit our number. So go, go, go. And so it was just sort of a very insane thing where we're like desperately trying to hire people that didn't know what they were going to sell, whether we didn't have a product that was going to be sold simply because we built a spreadsheet that said that they had a certain amount of quota. And if we multiplied them times the quota, we'd hit, hit the, the revenue number. number. If only it was that easy. <laughs> exactly. No, that's, that's squarely <laughs> fitting that question right there. It was solid, solid, ridiculous. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome back anytime. 
thanks for having me and uh, happy to help promote or do whatever else is needed. Yeah. You've been listening to Revenue Makers. Do you have a revenue project you were asked to execute that had wild success? Share your story with us at sixcents.com slash revenue. We might just ask you to come on the show. And if you don't want to miss the next episode, be sure to follow along on your favorite podcast app.